Let me just start with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for this morning. Thanks that we can come to your word um, in the prophet Joel. We pray that we would hear well and that we would uh, be moved to respond and to see you more greatly in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so, as you guys know, we are going through a minor prophet series. And today we come to the prophet Joel. And so, yeah, we'll just, we'll just go quickly uh, through the notes. So, number one, who is Joel? Um, Joel is like one of the minor prophets that we have very few, very little information about. Um, Jared, can you read that one verse? Uh, yeah. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Okay, that's all we know about Joel, pretty much. Uh, we don't even know who Pethuel really is. But uh, the, his name, Joel, means Yahweh is God. And um, again, we, we don't know... Uh, we'll read more about this later, but we don't even know where he's from, like when he lived. Uh, but we just have his book. Um, but based on the things that he's he writes about, and based on like what he doesn't write about, people kind of suspect that he is a either a very hopeful citizen of the capital, or that he's like some kind of participant in the temple Jerusalem. Right. We'll just we'll just rush through the first two points. Uh, number two, what was the historical context of Joel's ministry? Again. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement as to where or when he lived and where he was writing from. Um, there, it ranges from like 800 BC to like 180 BC. But by and large, I think most scholars are, um, hold somewhere in the middle, uh, shortly after the exile. And this is for a number of reasons. Uh, but it's uh, the Book of Joel. Like, there's lots of good things that we can wean from it, regardless of when it was written. But obviously, if we knew when it was written and why it was written, we would have better information and be able to know more. Uh, any questions about the first two? That's that's kind of like the less sexiest information. All right. Um, so let's go to number three. What are the themes in Joel? And, and in the book of Joel, there's broadly three uh, themes that come up. Um, so we'll start with the first one, which is judgment. Um have. You want to just read that paragraph? Yeah. Uh, Joel introduces the Lord's judgment in the form of, of a locust infestation, drought, and the coming of a great army. He describes the devastation that has come upon Judah. This attack is so powerful in its scope that it must uh, in some way be connected with the day of the Lord. Great. Um, so for so do, the book of Joel uh, has three chapters in it. Uh, the first chapter is talking about this locust uh, swarm of locusts that has like devastated the whole country locust is like these like ugly grasshopper looking things uh, and they when they're like like they, when they're first babies they like they like hop around I saw I, I saw like YouTube videos it's like really gross and then like later on when they're fully grown they, there's like a whole swarm uh, you guys know you guys watch uh, the Prince of Egypt the, the swarm of locusts was one of the ten plagues it like it like kills a bunch of crops and anyway we'll describe it more because uh, Joel is pretty descriptive but in the first chapter there's a swarm of locusts that has uh, destroyed the country and then in the second chapter that's what we're going to focus on uh, today in the second chapter Joel begins to talk about how that was just a precursor for what's going on or what's about to happen so uh, let's see ciao can you read just the first verse of um, 
Joel 2. <clears throat> Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Great. Uh, so a couple things. Um, I mean, it's it might seem a little bit obvious, but just so we're all on the same page. Blowing a trumpet in Zion. Uh, Zion was generally uh, perceived to be like where God resided, right? like somewhere where the temple was. It's in Jerusalem, so it's like on a mountain top. And when you blow a trumpet, when you blow the ram's horn, it's supposed to signal uh, imminent destruction. It's supposed to signal something's coming, and so people are supposed to be alarmed, right? Um, and and like what was that? Is that a Lord of the Ring reference? Yes. Okay. I don't know Bordermere, but. <laughs> but okay, so magical unicorns horn that summons demon. Okay, anyway, um, and so we can we get we get a feel for that in the next verse, right? It says, "Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble." The idea that the the day of the Lord is supposed to induce like this kind of fear that leads to trembling and quivering. Um, and then the last line says, "For the day of the Lord is coming; it is near." Uh, the day of the Lord is a major thing, a theme that comes up in Joel. Uh, it's mentioned five times in the book of Joel, uh, and thirteen times in all the other prophets combined. So, Joel talks uh, a lot about the day of the Lord. And basically, the day of the Lord is described in, in this verse is described as a day of judgment and horror. Uh, and that's surprising because uh, the day of the Lord was supposed to be a time when people were supposed to be vindicated, when the people of Israel were supposed to be rescued. Uh, but in the book of Joel, it refers to not only the day of judgment upon the nations and Israel, but also a day of like hope and salvation, a time of blessing and deliverance. And so it, it gets kind of used in a dual manner. Um, and so in some ways, there's like, I don't know, in some ways there's even like a day of the Lord that comes before the day of the Lord. Uh, this. Oh well, I'll let, I'll let Michael interview. Well, I was gonna say that. <laughs> I was I was just saying that there's a <laughs> there's a day of the Lord that's like almost like a judgment, and then there's another day of the Lord that's. Uh, well, I guess it's one day that is judgment for one people and 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 blessing for another people simultaneously. I'm, I'm like reading your facial expressions. <laughs> the, yeah, so this is where like um, uh, people disagree, right? This is where uh, people disagree. There are major caps on what is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord should be just taken at face value. It's one day. All these things happen, right? But the day of the Lord, uh, which would be what? The end of all history and the end of all time, right? When Jesus and King comes back and everything. But then in many ways there are these anticipatory fulfillments of the day of the Lord, right? So in some ways, when Israel goes into exile, that's the day. Mm -hmm. uh, when Jesus comes and, uh, and, and puts to death sin and, and, and evil and death on the cross, that's the day of the Lord, so to speak. And so it's kind of it's called the prophetic horizon where it's one day but then all of these events lead up to it. And that's the fulfillment. That's a very specific explanation. It's very thorough and helpful. Um, okay. Yeah, it's kind of like 
you know when you're when you're driving yeah. and then you look out at the horizon ahead of you, it looks like one point. But as you get closer, it's like it stretches out to multiple sites. Does that make sense? So it looks like maybe one city, and as you get closer, you realize the city stretches out. So when the prophets are looking ahead, they're seeing it as one day. The day of the Lord. <laughs> okay, um, but we'll we'll go on. And so the then from Joel two to five, it, it begins to describe again this this locust swarm wasn't just supposed to be a um, natural disaster, but it, it was supposed to uh, sig- symbolize or signify that God's judgment was also going to fall. So, Chai, you want to read um, the next just the next two verses? Actually, just finish it up. Up to five. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread among upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Um, their like their light has never been before. Nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the, on the tops of the mountains like, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stump, like a powerful army drawn up to battle. Great. Um, okay, so there's a lot of descriptive words that are going on, so let's, we'll just break uh, some of these down uh, so we know what's going on. Uh, so in verse 2 it says, Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. Um, what is that talking about? And most commentators agree that this is a reference to, again, the locust swarm. That it's, like, when you look at it, it's, like, seriously, like, there's millions, literally, like, millions of, like, grasshoppers that are, like, or locusts that are, like, flying and, like, uh, it's just, like, really gross. But um, it's, like, it looks like (laughs) blackness just, like, um, covering everything. Um, And so this idea that, like, this... uh, the day of the Lord is going to come like blackness uh, that is spread upon the mountains. This is the mountains. What's so like to form a wise locust? Such a fierce Because uh, when the locust comes, they don't just eat like the little grains or the kernels, but then they just like start eating like everything. So the whole like crop is literally destroyed, like whole fields of crops, and so that it doesn't even like grow back before, for the next harvest, it, they have to like redo everything, it's just, and they can go up to like 50 miles, they can cover up, up to like 50 miles in one day, it's just like, uh, they destroy lots of things. Um, going on, let's see, it says, the, the land is like the Garden of Eden before them in verse 3, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Uh, the prophet is just, again, trying to juxtapose the amount of damage and destruction these locusts are uh, doing. Right? It's like what once looked like the Garden of Eden is now looking like it's not the Garden of Eden anymore. Right? <laughs> That's important, by the way. Judgment. And it's 
Mm-hmm. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. Um, the idea that this, this locust army looks, uh, again, creates the kind of fear that an enemy army would look like. They're fast, they, they're leaping, um, or they can either fly, or when they're babies they like, start hopping around. Uh, and in verse 5, the rumbling of chariots, the crackling of a flame of fire. Uh, one, one commentator says like that the locust swarm, when it's like moving, it sounds like a jet engine bl- uh, blaring or blasting. It's like so deafening, the noise. Um, and so like when it's moving, it sounds like, again, the rumbling of chariots, a, a crackling of a flame of fire. You guys know like when you set logs on fire, it crackles. Right? It's loud. It makes lots of noises. Um, and like a powerful army drawn up for battle. And so uh, the, the image of judgment, uh, this was not just a past judgment that happened like with the locust, the literal locust swarm, but it's supposed to be a precursor for what the day of, of the Lord would look like, um, how there's like another coming judgment um, that's imminent in some ways. Any questions about the judgment that Joel draws up? Um, the, when I looked it up on Wikipedia, it said f- every 14 years, roughly, uh, in some countries. Um, For infestations of locusts? Yeah, like when, it's swar- when a swarm comes. But uh, one commentator said like this locust might have been for like a, for a couple of years, like successive years. And so, I don't know, do you have like, a, other thoughts? I don't know, yeah. I mean, maybe it's like there are different levels of locusts. Right. So maybe there could be like a, 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 a mild infestation or a localized infestation. But maybe with Joel's point, because he's talking about it like in apocalyptic terms. Right. This is the locus of all locusts. Right? Yeah, because he's talking about how like in verse 2, um, like their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And so... so this is like a once in a lifetime. This is like our equivalent of a big one. Yeah. Um pretty big <laughs> and again like uh, I think that's why like uh, most because there's some disagreement as to whether uh, this is talking about like another literal army coming or if it's supposed to be like something more like apocalypto uh, apocalyptical and so I think most commentators agree that it's more uh, talking about like the apocalypse and so again judgment is imminent and it's about to fall uh, and then we read, and then in Joel, there's a lot of talk about repentance, the theme of repentance. Uh, Meredith, can you read that paragraph? The judgment is present, it is not too late to repent. This turning is not a token gesture or an act of empty ritual. It must be wholehearted. Outward manifestations there will be fasting, weeping, and mourning. But they must be symbols of a broken heart. It will fully yield it to God's demands. Great. Um, so we'll just run through this. Uh, verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weep, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And so this idea of rending your hearts and not your garments, um, what does that mean? It's, like, it's not like God saying like literally, like, well, first of all, the word rend means to tear into pieces, into two pieces or more. And so it's not like God is saying like, you know, rip your heart into pieces, right? Because um, the, the typical way that people would express mourning or, or sadness or like even like an overwhelming sense of, of 
uh, anger or whatever is was to like, tear their clothes, right? Uh, you see that throughout the Bible. Um, and so when, when God says to the pro- through the prophet, rend your hearts, uh, it's talking about how people should uh, not just have outward manifestations of repentance or of, of sorrow, but that it should be, it should cut to the heart. Everybody agree with that? <laughs> um, but what's really interesting is the next verse. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over the di- over disaster. And so the word for for he is gracious it seems to imply that the reason why we can repent isn't because oh by repenting God is somehow obligated to forgive us or something like that, but that rather we can repent because God because of who God is because of His character because of His uh, graciousness because of how slow to anger He is. And so even the fact that we can Repent is uh, only uh, is initiated by God's uh, character, His ongoing goodness. Right. Um, so these, this is pretty basic, but I just want to really jump down to uh, verse 15 and on. It says, um, actually, let's we'll, we'll go back to verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so that... Uh, so Harry talked about this last week. He said, who knows? Uh, he kind of talked about the word perhaps and how that when people repent, it's not something that we should presume upon that God is somehow, again, like if we do this much repenting, then God is going to bless us this much. Rather, we repent and it's up to God. We don't presume upon his kindness, but it's up to God whether he chooses to forgive us, whether he chooses to deliver us. And so this idea that who knows? We humbly wait on him. We don't say like, oh, we repented and you still brought judgment. You still brought destruction, right? That's, that's not really repentance. That's more like us trying to do something or earn something. Because true repentance is what we say. We repent what we deserve. We still deserve punishment. Mm-hmm. Repentance doesn't change, um, change the, the, the fact of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And so if God... Yeah, so we don't we don't presume upon the kindness. Uh, he is just in everything that he does. Um, going on, it says, and leave behind a, leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so, when the locust came, everything was destroyed, including. Um, the grains and I guess that affected somehow the the because you need grains and grapes in order to make wine, right? Uh, a drink offering. And so when everything was destroyed, it included the ways that they would connect to God, like the offerings that they were supposed to offer to God. And so God is saying, like, oh, if you if you repent, then perhaps who knows whether He will come back and restore the land, will uh, leave a blessing behind, so that we can leave, so that we can bring a grain offering and a drink offering. And it's interesting that uh, even the blessings that God gives to us isn't supposed to be like for our own personal use, but it's supposed to uh, help us to worship God and to give more back to Him. I think that... Uh, let's see how the commentator wrote it. Yeah, the material provisions God gives His people are as much for His service as for their comfort. 
No, I was just thinking as you were talking about that. Um, like if, if a locust infestation were to come over California, and I guess it'd be sad and stuff, and it'd affect the farmers and the economy. But I mean, I wouldn't freak out too much. Um, and maybe we can't really relate, because for them, they didn't have like a bit, uh, long haul truckers bringing food far away. That if uh, if there was this kind of major, uh, fact, uh, what is it, locus station, mm -hmm. then you're kind of as good as dead, right? Because you're going to start. Mm. I think that that's really striking. It's hard for us to really appreciate that your life depended on the harvest. If the harvest was wiped out, you're dead, and you're not going to die in a pleasant way. You're going to die in location. Right. Uh, and we talked about that when we were talking about the different feasts that uh, the that the people of Israel would go through, um, the feast of of, of booths or the feast of weeks. That these feasts were supposed to, in part, be talked or like the feast of bread. Um, I think that's what it's called. Uh, but that it was supposed to like thank God for uh, the harvest that He was bringing to, to His people. Uh, that like talking about like the material abundance or like the food that He was providing, kind of like manna and the desert or, and so yeah that yeah that, that we can't fully appreciate what these people are going through um, so I think I think it's also interesting that uh, we'll talk more about this in a minute but then that Joel when when God when this natural disaster happens that Joel says that this is from God and then he interprets it in a way that it says like don't just try to like rebuild your cities or rebuild your farms or uh, depend on Egypt for like food uh, but he says that you should repent and in some ways if you think about it like what does if like if uh, something happens a natural disaster happens occurs you know, like what will repenting do to fix the reality on the ground uh, but Joel is saying that's like the most urgent thing that we can do and we'll read that right now he says Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. And so here we read about how uh, the, the, re the call to repentance is something that's really urgent. Um, it's really urgent. And so we, we read that uh, the people are supposed to consecrate a fast on a solemn assembly. Um, a solemn assembly um, is just where people gather and they're fasting. Um, it's similar to the uh, holy convocation that we talked about um, during the the Sunday school lesson on the feasts. Um, but it talks about how all the people are supposed to gather. They're supposed to come to this pilgrimage and come and fast and pray and worship. And it says... Uh, it talks about like the scope of who should gather. It says, assemble the elders. Uh, so it's probably not talking about like the elders as in like people who are in leadership as much as it is talking about like people who are old. And so people, you know, obviously for older folks to climb up the mountain to Jerusalem is going to be like, it's going to be terrainous and stuff like that, but people are supposed to still climb up. Um, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the uh, and we should I should say in First Samuel it talks about how uh, when God had given Samuel to Hannah, um, like 
her husband just went to the temple without him because she was like, oh, I'm going to wait for the baby to be weaned first, and then I'll go up. But then over here, Prophet Joel is saying, like, no, even the, the babies who are, like, nursing need to come. This is, like, really urgent for everybody to come. And right here, the next one, it says, let the bridegroom leave his room in the brighter chamber. Uh, if, we, if we jump to the next over here in Deuteronomy, we, that makes more sense. It says, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. And, then, and in another verse, it's supposed, it says that the reason for this is so that you know, he can make children, so that if he were to die, then there would be children uh, to like carry on the lineage. But it says that a bride and a bridegroom is like in some ways exempt from public duty or like from some of the civic duties that uh, were, was expected of most people. But even the bridegroom and the bride are supposed to leave their, their chamber where they're like, you know, doing, fulfilling their vows. Um, they're supposed to leave that and go and mourn and weep and fast with the people. And I think that's really interesting because it says that like, for them, like the bridegroom and the bride, that's such a joyous celebration that they have in their own lives. And yet, in light of what's going on with the country, in light of what's going on with the people, um, it doesn't matter like what's going on in your personal individual lives. That um, even though they're um, personally for them, they're like really happy that they should come and mourn with the people of Israel. Right. And again, I think it just highlights the urgency of of repentance, of how we shouldn't wait or how it shouldn't just be taken lightly, uh, but that it requires everybody to like stop what they're doing and gather and repent before God. Um, and I think this is really interesting that um, that even for today, like there's like some people that talk uh, that use kind of like some of this language. I remember uh, I found this like thing where uh, Lincoln back in the 1800s he uh, enacted this or he created this national day of prayer and some of the language that he uses I won't read the whole thing but some of the language that he uses is very similar to what Joel uses um, this is in the middle of the civil war and with um, the emancipation proclamation that kind of stuff and it says and in so much as we know that by his divine law nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. Um, we have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched us and strengthened us. And he closes by saying, It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. And so this has been something that's like, that wasn't just like 2,500 years ago that people did stuff like this, but like even Lincoln, um, and we're not saying that like, you know, should we have like some kind of national day of prayer, like be political, uh, but the idea that again, like it is, a, it is something of urgency uh, that people should come to repentance. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah. Um, I'm a little reluctant to make this comment uh, uh, because I think that that is a generally a good point. 
I would say we have to be very careful um, because you hear politicians say stuff like, oh, Hurricane Katrina is kind of like this locust thing where it's judgment on America for, you name it, abortion or gay marriage or something like that. And I think it's, um, and, and again, there are two camps. There's always two camps, right? There are two camps. There's two ways of looking at it, which is that Israel, the story of Israel can be applied to any nation. So if America doesn't shape up morally, then God's going to bring judgment on America, just like God brings judgment on Israel. But another way to look at it, which is the way I look at it, is no other nation is like Israel. Israel is an utterly unique nation in the history of God's working with the world. And it doesn't apply. So America's not, quote-unquote, a Christian nation under judgment if they commit, quote-unquote, these national sins. Um, but Israel is really a picture of the church. And so it doesn't, it doesn't um, these days, these national feasts are the uh, repentance days. But again, that's a whole issue. That's a whole other issue that could be at the 15 Sunday uh, Right. Uh, that's why I didn't talk about Rick Perry's National Day of Prayer. Uh, yes. The one that Actually, he... Rick Perry quotes Joel. Yeah, he does. He uh, quotes Joel and he applies it to America. And I think that is a really, he's a really terrible theologian, but he, it's a really bad application mm-hmm. of Joel. It's not, Joel's not talking about America. Right. He's talking about Israel. Uh, I think uh, we're just trying to, Talk about how, like, in in light of when natural disasters happen or economic disasters happen, where is the first thing that we go to? I remember Wade preaching a couple uh, months ago. He talks about how, like, the first thing that he would do is, like, in the morning wake up and check his stocks or something. And how he was saying, like, actually um, being, like, convicted and reminded that uh, the first thing that he should go to is trusting God is going to provide... So yeah, we won't we won't go off on that tangent. Okay, last point: um, the idea of hope. Uh, God, I'm just gonna go quickly. God, in His grace, hears the cries of His people and moves to restore and bless them. Um, and in this last part of uh, chapter two, it says, "The threshing floors shall be full of grain; the vats shall overflow with wine and oil." Uh, first of all, just really quickly, threshing floors were like uh, these things on the ground, and so this is where like the wheat was like laid. And then, like, oxen or, like, cattle would, like, go over it with, like, some kind of, like, wooden board. And they would, like, crush um, the, the, the wheat, the, this thing, so that the little grain pieces would, like, be separated. And then, you know, like, the winnowing fork that John Baptist talks about uh, would be used to throw the stuff in the air and the chaff would fly away. Anyway, so let's talk about how, like, even though all the crops have been destroyed... He's saying that actually the threshing floors will be full, will be, mm-hmm. shall be full of grain, so that it's going to be an abundance of harvest. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. It's talking about the vats are the things that contain the wine, right? That's where, but it's where the grapes are crushed and it's creating the juice. But in any case, uh, they're going to overflow, and I will restore to you the years uh, that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Um, and so God, uh, so God is again saying that He is the one that sent us, that He is the one that is in control, that it's not something else. Um, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of your Lord, of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am the mi- in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And so, like Michael was saying, there's two ways to read this, uh, but we'll just talk about the way that 
um, we believe in, which is um, that this is not a promise for the people of Israel, but it's a promise, well, for the ethnic Israel, but for the true Israel, which is the church, uh, Christians. And if you look at the language, it says in verse 26 and 27, and my people shall never again be put to shame. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And so the idea that like, that it, it can't in some ways apply to ethnic Israel because um, even when they went back to the land, um, even when they, after exile, they went back to the land, uh, they were still in shame under Roman oppression. Uh, even recently in, in World War II, uh, right? Like they were, it was, they were put to shame. And even now uh, with where they're at, with being like attacked on every front, they are in some ways being put to shame. And so that it's not just ethnic Israel. And so uh, I think some people would, would argue that, I don't know what I'm drawing here, but some people would argue <laughs> that my people never being put to shame again uh, is referring to um, Christians, that because in light of how God has saved us, uh, that we, will, we won't be put to shame, that in the eternal cosmic picture that we will be vindicated uh, that even if we're like temporarily sh- uh, put to shame here on this earth or, or persecuted, that in the big picture we won't be. And so it talks about restoration. And then the last two verses, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my, my spirit. Uh, does that ver- Do those verses sound familiar to anybody? You guys know where that's from? It's quoted in the New Testament somewhere. Acts? Yeah, do you know where? Yeah, exactly. Um, at Pentecost, right, it's when like tongues of fire fell on the people, and they're like speaking in tongues, and then people are like, oh, they're drunk. What's going on? It's like only nine in the morning. And then Peter stands up among them, and he says, we're not drunk. And he tells them, he quotes the prophet Joel. He says, and in the last days, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so, and he, he begins to quote this, this part of Joel. And, he, and in essence, he's saying that, uh, that what they're witnessing, the, these tongues, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, let's just draw tongues of fire. Um, this gift... Is that a tongue? Tongues of fire. Um, <laughs> you, you know... You know the flame itself could also be described as, anyway, come on. <laughs> it's with the eyes. It looks, like, um, it looks like that walk. <laughs> but, okay, so the idea that, like, why was the Spirit poured out, right? We can ask that question. Why was the Spirit poured out on the people? Was it because in, in Joel, in Joel chapter 2, it says, repent, and people repented, and that's why the Spirit was given? Is that what happened? Or is it the case that the people did not repent? Uh, if you read on in Joel chapter 2, or in, in Acts, uh, Peter suggests that, what do you say? he says that uh, people did not repent. Um, that they actually crucified Jesus. And if you go back to John chapter 14, when like, Jesus is about to leave, he says, it's better that I leave so that I can give the Spirit to you, so that the Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate uh, will come to you. And so in some ways we... We would say that this was not uh, that this was fulfilled not by the people of Israel repenting, but it was fulfilled by Jesus uh, dying, Him taking the blame, 
and because he died and rose again, uh, the spirit, I don't know, what is the bird? The dove. Uh, the spirit was poured out on the people uh, as an act of his obedience and as an act of his, uh, yeah, his death and his resurrection. And so that that brings, I mean, that's the gospel right there. The idea that again, it wasn't about like how the people had to repent so well, but it's about how Jesus uh, fulfilled this prophecy. Is because through his active obedience, that by which people uh, receive the Holy Spirit, uh, receive justification, receive the blessings. Uh, the idea that uh, you shall know in verse twenty-seven, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, uh, that God is among us, because Christ was rejected from God's presence temporarily. Any questions? Thanks. I think it's really, verse 28 is really an amazing promise. It says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Old Testament, um, the spirit is very intermittent, and it doesn't come on all people. It only comes like to prophets and sometimes to the king. And then uh, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah, right, is that God, the law will not just be this external law, but it will be in the heart. And the promise is that we will all have the spirit. We will all have the law imprinted on our hearts. And we'll all love God as we should. And we couldn't back in the old covenant because we didn't have the spirit. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's like an amazing promise. And I think it's all the more amazing because we didn't repent. <laughs> God gives it to us purely out of grace because He just loves us. He gives us the Spirit to love Him. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And I, and I would also say, remember you were saying, you know, in verse um, 27, when, G, when God says, I will restore Israel in the midst of Israel, is He talking about um, restoration of, uh, of uh, the Middle East, the territory? You know, is there going to be like bountiful crops? Ultimately, it's talking about the church because uh, Peter says this whole prophecy was fulfilled. It was fulfilled on Pentecost. How was it fulfilled on Pentecost when they were under Roman occupation? Unless the fulfillment is obviously um, salvation. That's that's the argument for why it's fulfilled. We have the promises. All the promises are yes and amen. Amen. That's that's a great way to <laughs> uh, close up. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that um, all the promises, like Michael was telling us, all the promises are yes and amen in him, uh, that we have received this great salvation, that we have received uh, the bountiful abundance of your blessings in him. And so we pray that as we go into worship that we would be reminded of your great salvation and that we, it, would be, it would move us to love you more. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.